0: Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Glenn from the On Education Podcast. And we're part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education
1: podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
0: Hey guys, this is Greg Goins. I want to take just a few minutes of your time to thank you for listening to the Reimagine Schools podcast. Your support for this podcast means the world to me as I have the opportunity to talk to some of the top educators, innovators, and change agents in the field of education. And the mission remains clear, folks. We want to create better schools for kids. But now I want to come to you directly, as loyal listeners of the podcast, and ask for your help as we hopefully take Reimagine Schools from a podcast that comes out each week to a movement that will be regular conversation around your school. So how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to come from you, and it's going to come from the ground up as you are in your schools and you are there ready to do the work to create better schools for kids. So this week I'm going to ask you to do a little favor for me. I want you to share this podcast with your school superintendent, your principals, and teachers throughout your school district. Help us spread the message by sharing links on social media or by telling colleagues about your favorite guests and ideas for those not on social media. Maybe you can send an email with the podcast links from the Reimagine schools podcast are from one of our 11 listening platforms that you can find where podcasts are available. Why not even make a QR code to put up in your teacher's lounge with a link directly to podcast episodes for those that are not connected educators better yet. Maybe it's time to form your own podcast study group. Just like a book study, a lot of districts now are forming podcast study groups and they're using the Reimagined Schools podcast to spark those conversations. And who knows, I just might pop into a Zoom meeting with your podcast study group. All you have to do is DM me or send me your information at drgreggoins at gmail.com. So it's time to think differently and it's time to make a difference. Please help me this week spread the word. Let's reimagine schools together. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. My special guest today is Star Saxton, a popular author, presenter, National Board Certified Teacher, and a leading voice for hacking assessment and shifting the conversation to how you can have a gradeless classroom. Star was named an ASCD Emerging Leader in 2016. She also has a wonderful TEDx talk out there. The title of that is A Recovering Perfectionist Journey to Giving Up Grades. It's a good one, so you want to check that one out. Star is the author of several fantastic books. Her most popular is Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Graded School. Her most recent book is about her two-year journey from the classroom to an administrative position. That book is titled From Teacher to Leader, Finding Your Way as a First-Time Leader Without Losing Your Mind. She's also currently wrapping up her next book project that should be out in 2020. That book is all about assessment, within learning centers. So you wanna be looking for that wherever books are sold in 2020. Star is also a popular blogger. You can find her work at her website at misssaxton.com. You can also find her at Education Week Teacher. That blog is called A Work in Progress. She's also contributed numerous other uh, articles and publications. She's a wonderful presenter. And you can also find her giving workshops Around the country. Be sure to check out that website and you want to follow Star on Twitter at Miss Saxteen. She's a good one, folks. My conversation with Star Saxteen begins right now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast. I'm very excited today to have a very special guest with us who's a nationally board certified teacher. She's also a leading voice on hacking assessment and incorporating a gradeless classroom. A big welcome to Star Saxteen. How are you, Star? Hi,
1: Hi. I'm happy to be here.
0: I am a big fan of your work, and I'm so excited to finally get a chance to meet you and talk with you face-to-face. Uh, kind of a funny story before we get going. I was in the drive through this morning uh, trying to grab breakfast, and uh, I pull up right behind a red minivan. And, of course, in the back, there's a bumper sticker that says, uh, My child is an honor roll student at insert your favorite school, and I thought, you know, that's only fitting since I'm going to talk to Star today uh, about that, and I, I, you know, I automatically go to what kind of pressure must that child face on a day-to-day basis to keep that bumper sticker uh, in the back window, so that's, that was my first thought this morning for you.
1: Yeah, you know, honestly, those stickers, honor rolls, a lot of things that um, inherently put kids in competition with each other, I think they're well intentioned and there's certainly there's a long standing tradition in most institutions you know as young as middle school and into high school where um in order to make the grade you, you kind you know and then we could brag as parents about our our kids making the grade um it's challenging and as a matter of fact, the district that I live in is extraordinarily traditional, and watching my son go through it even though even though I don't necessarily ascribe to a lot of the things that they um, that they really hold dear, um, watching him be in that system is definitely a challenge.
0: Yeah, and I've heard you talk about your son, who's I think in ninth grade this year, and, and mm-hmm. I got a little chuckle out of a previous interview you did. Uh, you actually gave a copy of your book, Hacking Assessment, to some of his teachers uh, not too long ago, and how are you received in your local district as someone that's an expert in some of these innovative practices that maybe people are still uh struggling with because we know change is a hard thing to, to get going?
1: Locally, I, I don't know that so many people around here, with the exception of Pockets, really know who I am. If I go to other places, they know who I am. Um his my son's gifted and talented teacher, Angela Abend, actually knew who I was before Logan showed up in in her class Um, but Logan and I don't ask names so you know you'd have to know a little bit about about me and about him and um, I I think it's hard for me and it's hard for them and for a lot of times I've, I've really tried to stay out of it um, because he doesn't like it when I meddle and he always sort of feels like my beliefs get him in trouble and then the teachers treat him differently because of because of me and who I am. Whereas maybe some administrators, like his principal, was um used to read my Edweek blog. So she felt like she knew me the first time we came in and kind of had a conversation about something. Um I really Feel very strongly about empowering teachers and trusting teachers in their spaces. So imposing my beliefs that may or may not align with um, a district's beliefs, I think is is a very delicate balance to walk. I leave teachers to their spaces and leave Logan to his experience with those teachers as. He's going to have to encounter a lot of people in this world who either agree with my beliefs or his beliefs or anybody's beliefs. And he's going to have to learn to navigate those waters on his own. So I only really step in if I feel there's been an injustice done, um, one that is hurting his trajectory with kids at school. Otherwise, I, I let him work it out himself.
0: You know, you're the author of many fantastic books, but probably the one that is my favorite and the one that probably blew up the biggest in 2015 is Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional uh, Graded School. And uh, I know you've been influenced by a lot of people. I've heard you reference Alfie Cohn. I had an opportunity to actually have Alfie on this podcast about a year ago and just really blew me away and changed the way I think about competition, think about grading, but uh, one of the things Alfie talked about when I had a chance to sit down and talk with him for a while was he says there's overwhelming re- research showing that kids think less deeply and become far less interested in what they're learning if it's reduced to a letter grade. So I can you just talk that. about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think so much of what we do in school when kids are playing school is about this machine of Completing tasks, completing them to the degree that we think our teacher is looking for us to complete them and it, it, it becomes a lot less about the learning and a lot more about completing tasks, compliance, making sure you're making deadlines, making sure you're doing things right. And there, there isn't enough space for creativity, for really thoughtful, critical thinking, um, The whole structure itself is antithetical to those things. I mean, if we were really striving for creativity, there wouldn't be a deadline. Maybe it would be a rolling deadline. Um, There wouldn't be one product that would be acceptable at the end of it. There would be room to make some choice and to make it our own all along the way. And the content itself could even be massaged for the individual learner. And I think kids learn really early on in elementary school that, to win that praise from everybody around them and to be considered smart they sort of have to do these tasks and do them with efficiency and high accuracy so that they could get to the next task until they could come home at the end of the day and play video games or you know finish their homework and do the things they really like to do watch youtube videos about you know whatever is interesting to them and I think it's a paradigm shift that really needs to happen in schools now where we really engage kids with things they're interested in and we give them the opportunity to take a lot of different information that they're getting in the world now. And there's stimulus coming from everywhere, information coming from everywhere. And we have to make sure that they are good consumers of what's out there and then good creators of new content that, that we put out there and, They're exposed to it so young now, so pretending like it's not skill sets that we need them to be really adept at handling seems a little silly almost.
0: You know, I was talking with teachers recently about this, you know, obviously the homework debate has been at the forefront for a while now, and it should be. And again, I've changed my thinking. I've done a complete 360 on homework because as Alfie Cohn said, when I talked with him, you know, it's really a second shift for parents. You know, they have to come home and, and work all night and get the homework done. But it's kind of, I kind of chuckled when I talked with teachers recently. They said, Oh, we're not calling it homework anymore. It's an extended learning opportunity. But if you're still not providing feedback, if you're still not giving a grade, it's still just meaningless work.
1: Well, I mean, there's really, No research that supports that homework in elementary school and even into middle school helps learning in any way, shape, or form. And kids need that time. They spend so many hours in school. They really do need time with unstructured play and time to be with their friends and decompress when they get home. And at the secondary level, kids have such varied needs that assigning one kind of homework for everyone in this space just isn't going to do what it's supposed to do. If homework's supposed to help with practice, help build mastery, um, grading it is problematic because you don't know who actually did it. And I know that sounds horrible to say, but there are lots of moms and dads out there who are very helpful in um, how they do homework at home and projects that get done by parents and you could tell when you look at some science fair projects how much hands have been involved by adults and all the money that comes into play to do those kinds of things like that. So I don't know we we really do need to think about um, what what our intentions are when when we ask kids to do homework, um, what we're hoping they're going to get out of it, and then also if it actually aligns with, with what our philosophy is about learning in our, in our shared space at school.
0: And, you know, one of the things that we both have in common is uh, you started your career as a high school English teacher, also taught journalism, and I did as well. And the thing that I struggled with early on, and I made a ton of mistakes as a, as a first, second, third-year teacher, but I really struggled with grading writing. And uh, I, I understand there's great value in teaching kids the structure and how to put their thoughts together on paper, but it was really challenging for me. I mean, it's very subjective. If kids are going to pour their heart out to you on a piece of paper uh, with a persuasive writing prompt, you know, I always felt like who am I to tell them that thought was wrong or to correct them in a way that maybe is going to going to hurt their self-esteem or or hurt their confidence so I've heard you say that we shouldn't even grade writing and I'm a big cheerleader for that concept.
1: I think grading any like grades in general I think hurt the dignity of students on so many levels but with writing and creative acts in particular art class um, if you have any kind of performance-based atmosphere where you have to assess. we can all talk about technical aspects of learning that might be a little bit easier to correct if there if there's a way of doing it but with writing and reading in particular to be a really good skillful writer you have to know the rules so you could break them and know that you're making kind of stylistically work with what you're trying to achieve and i think if we want kids to love writing we really can't treat it like math um where we're doing a problem and or even like the five paragraph essay when we're trying to get kids to learn how that structure those structures help some kids i'm not going to say that they're not good as a stepping stone when kids are first learning to extend their writing in an academic sort of way but they need to understand that there needs to be flexibility and in what they're developing and how those ideas go together and I think giving them feedback usage of the standards so that they know why they're getting the feedback that they are and how that feedback's going to improve the communication of the message they want to send that's almost more important using that kind of language like we never want to ding their ideas necessarily we we want them to communicate those ideas with fluency and ease and um, in a way that is unique to them and is engaging to a reader, if they're going to be doing that in a written word, or if they're going to be doing a speech across in a way that's animated and engaging, um, and, and theirs, which, you know, that's the hard part with, with grading it, even with a rubric is that it's so subjective and, Especially as an English teacher, journalism, I think is a little easier because there are, there are structures. If you're writing for a particular kind of section of a paper, you know, there are certain things that make it news or make it feature or make it opinion. And as long as those elements are in there, then it could safely fit inside of that section of the, you know, of the um, publication you're working in. But when you're writing, mm, it's, it's so, so subjective, and we put kids off so fast by telling them they're right or wrong when right or wrong should not even be a part of that conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're spot on, and I'm having some horrible flashbacks of teaching that five-paragraph essay, which, I mean, that was a system that we had to teach uh, because we knew they were going to be Uh, there was going to be state testing in the spring on how to write the five paragraph essay. It was a lot more enjoyable to teach the journalism part uh, because the kids seemed like they had a little more freedom, freedom to write. So I I share that experience with you. You know, when I, when I talk with a lot of administrators um, talk with principals, superintendents um, this idea of authentic assessment and maybe doing something different with grading, I think a lot of people are receptive but they, o- they always quickly change the conversation to data-driven decisions. We have to make data-driven decisions in order to do X, Y, and Z, whatever the big thing is they're working on. And my question, and I always get kind of a raised eyebrow, is why is that your top priority? I still don't understand why data-driven decisions have to drive your thinking on a day-to-day basis.
1: Well, I mean, I think it depends on what you're defining as data. Um, I think that we do make those this single day as in, as as teachers and also as administrators um when I was in my classroom I would be taking the status of the class while kids were doing independent reading or while they were writing and I'd confer with them and I would be jotting down what I notice as they're working or if I'm in Google Docs if I notice a trend um in a particular area of writing that all children seem to be struggling with, then I could say, Ooh, maybe I didn't teach that. So, well, I need to make sure that tomorrow I do a mini lesson on how to do that better. Or if kids are working in groups doing project-based learning and they're all struggling with a piece of content, then I could stop class right there and make the executives mini lesson about where that struggle is happening. So I don't think data needs to be numbers and test scores and summative kind of Information. I think it could be um, and should be the formative things that are happening in our spaces that help determine what learning can and should look like in those spaces um, on not just the classroom level, but also on the grander scale, too, at the school level, um, where we're making what initiatives we bring in based on what we're seeing on, on the day-to-day and trusting teachers and curriculum um, administrators as professionals to help make those decisions instead of it being so top down with, with what is put out there for an entire school community.
0: You know, I've been teaching in higher ed. Now, this is my third year. And, um, you know, coming from a, a background in K-12 education as a teacher and then as a school administrator, um, I am in rubric nirvana in higher ed. We, we even have a rubric to assess our rubrics and I, we, I sat through a meeting not too long ago. We talked about rubric monogamy where we all have to use the same rubric. So uh, we would actually have uh, the data that we need for whatever accreditation visit we're going to have. And it just drives me crazy. There has to be a better way of providing feedback than this world of, of rubric. That is still something that I struggle with.
1: Well, I think, Rubrics, too, are very subjective. Um, I mean, the whole point is so that the assessment isn't subjective, but they they really are. Um, I think the assessment of, you know, for learning needs to be standards driven. So, I mean, if we're working on a particular skill set or a content area that kids are learning at this time, they should be well-versed in what you know, the actual objective is. What are they supposed to be learning? And at what skill level are they around that particular thing? And maybe a more fruitful conversation would be like, let's have a calibration conversation here about what we think mastery looks like. What elements should be clear in what we're looking that I could comfortably say, yes, this child is masterful. or not, or proficient, or not quite there yet. And then all of us as a group in an English department or a science department or, uh, you know, or a larger humanities department, let's say, have the same understanding of what mastery looks like. Because I know in almost every English department I ever worked in, if a kid had one teacher a year before who valued very different things than I did, what the expectations in there, especially around writing, um, what the expectations were in that class versus what ended up being valued in my class was wildly different. And two of us sitting right next to us, maybe even teaching on the same grade level, had very different concepts of what a masterful piece of writing looked like. I mean, personally, I value voice. I value style over um, structural and grammatical correctness to me a kid who's willing to take risks then does and deviate from the norm shows a much higher level of understanding than a kid who understands how to use a comma well um, in a, you know in a multitude of different ways Is that so I think just having those conversations with our colleagues about what we value and having kids understand transparently why they're doing the work that they do and what the goal is before they start so that they're shooting for at the very least while they're doing these learning experiences.
0: You know, I know you go out and you speak a lot, you do a lot of workshops, and I, I know you get this question all the time, but what is the STAR-Saxstein starter kit for going with a grade, gradeless classroom, and how do you assess without giving traditional letter grades?
1: So I think it's as simple about putting the grade on there. Um, you know, give feedback, make sure it's really specific, actionable feedback so kids can grow from it, do it throughout the entire process, Delay the grade for as long as possible, because I know there, most systems require a grade for a report card. And if you're going to have to give a grade on a report card, rather than just averaging everything together at the end of a term or at the end, not do a more portfolio-based situation where kids are tracking their own progress, bring Bring reflection into the process as well so that uh, um, the gaps in learning between, you know, what we see kids can do, whether it's participating in class or in their actual assignments, we can also get into their heads as well and open it up to a dialogue, make it a conversation so that the teacher isn't the only one about the level of mastery that's being communicated, but that the kid's are involved in that conversation as well. Those are quick things you could start to do right away, I think, regardless of what your school's philosophy um, on assessment is.
0: Well, you definitely want to follow Star on social media. You can find her at Miss MissSaxstein and also her website at MissSaxstein.com. And I want to talk about the newest book you have out, the one that came out in 2019, uh, the name of the book is From Teacher to Leader, Finding Your Way as a First-Time Leader Without Losing Your Mind. So I can definitely use that that book in my principal program because I have a lot of first-time principals uh, that are coming out of our program into school leadership positions. Just talk a little bit about uh, your thinking and writing that book.
1: So I think for a lot of years, I was in the classroom for 16 years, and I think I worked with a really broad spectrum of really good leaders, um, maybe some not so great leaders. And maybe in my head, I was like, this looks so much easier than, you know, like, I don't understand what the holdup is on a lot of things. And I think I had a lot of preconceived notions about what leadership and if I had the opportunity to be a leader, what I would do differently. Um, So really what that book is about is charting my first year as a leader and i think it addresses a lot of the misconceptions of switching from you know whether or not it's time to leave the classroom the first the first decision do i want to be an admin go to the dark side if you will um do i want to be the kind of leader that teachers look to how can i be that instructional leader what would that require of me Um, And I really did try to be a parent in that space. So it does discuss a lot of the challenges of being in that space that teachers may not be aware of what happens behind closed doors when conversations and decisions are being made. Um, The struggles of being a new person to a district, new to leadership, um, working with veteran teachers who have been teaching and in education much longer than I have been. And, respecting their experience and really trying to work with them to bring and incorporate change, but also acknowledge their level of expertise and sort of work with that. And it, it was really a very interesting journey. I was in that position for two years. I had hoped it would be a position I would stay in longer, but um, after doing that job for two years, I, I realized my my full heart wasn't in it the way that being in the classroom, my full heart was, and it had nothing to do with where I was. I really loved the people I worked with. I really loved the kids in the district. It was close to home. Um, But I, I didn't have a love for 40% of the job I had to do. The actual admin part, the sitting in meetings, the, writing things up all the time, the passing directives on to teachers, sometimes ones I didn't necessarily agree with. Um, I was always trying to mitigate the damage of what was coming down and protect them from things that were often outside of our control as well. Like when ESSA came into place and all of the changes in New York with the next gen learning standards started happening as well. Sometimes there are state and federal initiatives that kind of get pushed down on schools where changes have to be made and it's outside of everybody's control. And it's like, how are we going to make this fit in the model we've got going on with as little disruption as possible? Um, and, and those, those kinds of, of dealings were not a place I felt very passionate about. Um, I didn't want to deal with testing for two months in April, you know, and then regent testing at the end of the year. Like I just, I didn't want that to be my focus. I wanted everyday instructional practice to be my focus. I wanted to help teachers engage kids more. I wanted to be in classrooms, um, co-teaching with the folks on my team and, Um, modeling if they wanted me to and plan lessons with them and help them write projects. Like that's where my heart was. I wanted to be in it with the kids going on field trips when I get the opportunity to do that too. So yeah, I I made an executive decision to walk away from that situation.
0: And I think it was a good one because I I think uh, you know, your passion is helping classroom teachers and helping schools improve. And that kind of leads us into your next book project, uh, that's going to focus on assessment and learning centers. And uh, I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not real familiar with the learning center concept. Mm-hmm. As someone that has most of my experience at the high school level uh, and now in higher ed, can you talk about the learning center concept and how um, this next book is going to play out for you?
1: Sure. So I'll start by saying that um, my co-author on that, Karen Twilliger, was a teacher on my team in West Hempstead. She's a sixth grade English and social studies teacher. And she, um, we did plus classes too. So there were these extra classes where she had kids who weren't necessarily in her regular classes coming in. And we were trying to find a way to make the space as functional as possible, as student-centered as possible. So kids didn't see it as just a class that was filling time, but a way to really build their interests and skills. So, what learning centers essentially are, and early ed people do this very well, and some English teachers and even social studies teachers at the higher, you know, secondary level do it as well, and maybe even science folks during labs, like lab rotations, would be a good fit um, analogy for what learning centers are. So you set up different spaces in your room that are themed around a particular task or skill set. Maybe if you're in an English classroom in a high school, it might be theme based or maybe you're doing um, nonfiction articles that align with uh, fictional text that you're working with at the time as a pre-reading activity where kids are going from one chart paper to another chart paper, sort of moving around the classroom in a different way where they're focusing their energies on one particular task for a set amount of time, but it's all small group learning. And what it does for the teacher is it gives you the opportunity to sometimes allow kids about how they're spending their time in the class that day. Um, You're also giving yourself time to maybe pull small group instruction. If you have some learners that are straggling that need a little help, or maybe even need some enrichment, and you want to pull a small group, it gives the kids an opportunity to be doing other things in the room that are more independent while you spend the time with the small group instruction. And learning centers could either either be for a full period where they're doing a rotation in the same station, or depending on what the objective of the lesson is, they could be moving from station to station inside of a lesson, which then brings, you know, some movement in for maybe some of your anxious kind of learners who need to be moving around a bit you could you know get them out of them move around you could use music to help ease transitions between stations so there's like a lot of different ways to use that space depending on what you know what the learning objective is for that for that day or week or month where you know kids are at different spots it's it's a great way for differentiation giving kids different opportunities to be exposed to the same thing in different ways um, and really introducing different modalities of learning as well in the spaces.
0: Will this be a 2020 release date?
1: I'm hoping. I mean, we should be finishing it soon, and it will be coming out with um, um, Times 10 through the Hack Learning series, probably late next year.
0: You know, it's it's kind of funny. We are approaching uh, 2020. I remember as a former school superintendent. You know, 10 or 12 years ago, I think all of us had a vision 2020 plan as to what we were going to do to be ready for 2020. And I look around and it's a little disheartening that so many things have not changed. But I'm a huge advocate for the work that you're doing, and I know you're seeing some great changes happen um, in the classroom. Where do you think we're going to go the next 10 years? Do you think? Uh, design thinking principles and project-based learning, and these things are going to continue to grow, which I think personally is going to help the assessment process.
1: I do as well. And and I think that um, partnerships, entrepreneurial partnerships, I think are also going to be a bigger part of what's happening. Um, since the workforce is changing so much in the last few decades, I think Training kids in this industrial error model that we have them in right now um, doesn't necessarily set them up for what's changing. Um, I know that a lot of universities are really shifting their practices as well and um, I actually just worked on a project where I um, sub- I con- I contributed a, um, a chapter for a, a secondary uh, college level higher ed book on getting rid of grades and Alcon actually he wrote the forward for that for that book that's going to hopefully be coming out next year as well, so I do believe like everybody always blames the person behind them or the person in front of them for why things don't change. Secondary people are like, well, when college admissions change their processes, maybe we'll have more flexibility and the college folks are like, maybe when things change over here our policies and the elementary school folks it's it's the same thing, but I think if we just put the focus on what's best for kids and what's going to help support what's going on in the world right now, I I think we have a winning recipe right there. Looking at the kids in front of us, deciding what's going to be best for them and and their whole selves, not just their academic selves, but really looking at them as whole people and speaking to their social emotional needs and really teaching them to be good. Layers and how to work well with others and as they brainstorm ideas that are really going to be the things that propel us into the next 10 20 years of you know innovations that are coming down the line.
0: Well, it's been a great conversation and again thank you so much for being here. Uh, again, I'm a big fan. You're doing great work. You can find All Stars books at our website at misssaxtine.com. You can also go to Amazon or wherever books are sold and find all the amazing work that she's done. I do want to give you one closing thought. Uh, I have a lot of teachers listening to the podcast uh, each week. Um, You know, they're in their car, they're on the treadmill. They're thinking, you know what, there's something to this gradeless classroom, but I have no idea what to do or how to get started. What do you say to that person listening right now?
1: I, I think the best thing you need to do is look inward for a second and ask yourself, you know, really question your current grading practices why do i do what i do what am i hoping to communicate by doing it this way and more importantly how effective are they are they doing what i hope they're going to do and i think what we all sort of find out later is that we hope that grades communicate learning but often they communicate compliance so we take a good hard look at what we are grading and and Why that is the focus of of what we're doing, and then maybe start shifting that conversation there.
0: So that's a wrap, folks, on this episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast. A big, big thank you goes out to my guest today, Star Saxton. She's an amazing person and has some great resources. If you're a school leader or a classroom teacher looking for ideas on assessment and how to go about creating a gradeless classroom, she's the real deal, folks. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, always do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.